Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org. Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. So we have a lot of hummingbirds around here in our Southern California desert neighborhood, and one of them got stuck and disoriented in our open garage the other day. Remember that, Lori? Yeah. So this uh, poor little guy just couldn't figure out that the opening straight ahead was where he should go. He kept on wanting to go up. And I did a little reading about hummingbirds and learned that that's their natural instinct. They're not used to being closed in. And when they need to escape, they, they go up. And so... It's a real treacherous situation for a hummingbird because they need to eat almost continuously. So you need to take an object like a broom or a rake. I saw a YouTube of that and you just hold it underneath the hummingbird and allow the hummingbird to perch there and then gently just walk them outside so they can fly away. And eventually the hummingbird will get tired enough that he wants to take a little rest and will just perch right on this little object. So that's a good tip to help the hummingbird get out of your open garage. The other thing that I uh, recently learned is that if you've got a motorized garage door that's built any time in the past few decades, chances are it has an emergency handle in case the power goes off and you need to get out. And this is a red color handle by law. And the hummingbirds are attracted to this. They They think it contains nectar. So you want to get rid of this red colored object either by painting it or wrapping it with electrical tape, black electrical tape, so it doesn't attract the hummingbird in the first place. So that was our recent little hummingbird experience, and it made us wonder what are some other things that you can do, like around the house, to help the wildlife that's sharing your neighborhood, right? Yeah. Well, one thing you can do is be sparing or even eliminate the use of pesticides and herbicides and other chemicals in your home and landscaping. Many chemicals used outdoors to kill certain insects also harm birds and insects that can be beneficial to us as well, like bees and butterflies. So I would say use as few chemicals in the outdoors as possible, right? You know, I've had some experience, you've smelled it with some of these products that are based on essential oils. They're very pungent. The insects don't like them at all, and they uh, are non-toxic. And never use rodenticides. Using poison bait to control rodents will always secondarily poison the raptors and other predators that eat the sick rodents. And there are many other humane alternatives to control rodents that are bothering you. Right. Another one, Peter, never feed wild mammals such as deer, raccoons, coyotes, obviously bears, right? Right. You know, where I used to live, I had a neighbor that would put cat food out for the raccoons. Well, raccoons can also attack and kill small dogs and cats. And they can carry rabies. So feeding these wild animals teaches them to be dependent on humans, and they end up losing their their, uh, fear of humans. They're more likely to come into conflict with people, and conflict with people almost always ends up being a bad situation for the animals. Right. On a similar note, put garbage and your litter in garbage cans. Food scraps by the side of the road can attract wildlife, which can then get hit by cars. And of course, if you are in bear country, you've got to abide by the local regulations about how to dispose of your trash when bears are around. They're very clever. Here's another one, Peter. Keep your dogs on leash when walking in open spaces or in areas where certain birds might be nesting. 
And in our area, a lot of which is designated bighorn sheep habitat, there are hiking trails and you're not supposed to bring your dogs because even if you don't see the sheep, they know the dogs are out there and it really messes up their mating rituals. So don't be a selfish dog guardian and just leave your dog at home if you're hiking near any of those trails. Good point. And finally, Peter, we've talked about this before. On When you're on vacation, be a smart souvenir shopper. Don't buy illegal or protected wildlife. Right, Lori. And you may run up against this in Southeast Asia where shells from uh, endangered tortoises may be uh, sold and other parts of animals that are just not legal to sell. So use caution. For more information on this, you can visit the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service travel and trade page or the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, CITES, CITES. for more information, right? Now, you said finally before, but I'm going to say more finally is the following bird follow-up point, okay? Please do. So when we moved into the current house, there's a fair amount of glass around this house, and we kept on hearing this banging, and it was basically the birds flying right into the glass window. Oh, I hate that. Very disturbing. And uh, you'd send me out and I'd see a stunned bird right on the ground. And sometimes he or she would fly away and other times it was just too much of an impact. So we went out and got these bird decals that were specially made and uh, we bought a bunch of them and they are supposed to have some optical property. Well, they were shaped like birds and flowers, but they were supposed to have some property that uh, encouraged the birds not to fly right into the window. It didn't work as well as it should. And it wasn't our final solution. And after about uh, three to five months, I would say they started turning brown and ugly and I had to scrape them off. Remember that? You didn't do the scraping. <laughs> I was the scraper. And but so we replaced them with- We replaced them. We had a better solution that I want to share. And that is the window film. These come in rolls or sheets, and they're very large, much larger larger than the decals, and they are designed to put over a large part of a window to obscure it so people can't look in your house. They come in beautiful little patterns, many different kinds, and you get one of these for 20 bucks or something like that, a big roller sheet, and you just cut them up, and then you apply them wherever you need. Much better solution. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. Check us out at animalstodayradio.com, where you can listen to any of our prior shows over the last seven and a half years. Check us out, animalstodayradio.com. I want to now welcome back to the show Darlene Kababel. She is the president of the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center. Welcome back to the show, Darlene. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Darlene, a few years ago, we interviewed a gentleman who rescued wolf-dog hybrids, and he was very strongly against that practice of breeding them or or creating them. How Mm -hmm. big a problem is wolf-dog hybrids these days, and does the center have a position on them? And, you know... To me, these individuals, irresponsible individuals, if you ask me, who want their dog to have a little wolf in them, it's really fraught with risks, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It can be, and that's that's a topic that is... It can be very controversial in so many ways, and our stance pretty much is wolves should be wolves and dogs should be dogs. And the reason for that is because so many so many problems. A lot of people have uh, problems sometimes owning an, just a domestic dog, let alone owning one that may have some wolf in it, and then it starts to have some wolf behavior, and then it gets out of control, and then that you know, that person or that family can't take care of that animal for whatever reason, and now they need to find a home for it. And the the problem with finding a home for it is 
um, first of all, if they do take it to any shelter uh, and you open your mouth and say, I have a wolf, and you use that word wolf, wolf dog, wolf hybrid, um, within 24 to 48 hours, they, they usually will euthanize that animal because a lot of states, a lot of counties uh, are not allowed to adopt them out mm. for one reason or the other, depending on you know where you're at. And a lot of people call them wolf hybrids. That's actually an incorrect term. It's actually wolf dog because a hybrid wouldn't technically be able to reproduce. So the, the proper word is a wolf dog, uh, but a lot of people do call them wolf, uh, wolf hybrid. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to relate to them as a wolf dog, um, and it is estimated at 250,000 that are born year uh, every year, 80% won't even reach their third birthday. And there again, the reason for that, because uh, some people can't deal with them for one reason or another, and like I said earlier, they take them to a shelter, or they try to find a sanctuary. The, the problem with sanctuaries is every single sanctuary in the United States is full beyond capacity. And I mean, look at your dog in rescues out there, right. and, and you know, your shelters and humane societies and, and non-kill shelters or whatever, they're full because we have a lot of, unfortunately, irresponsible people in a disposable society to where they can't, you know, they don't, something happens in their life and, oh, just give it away or, or take it to, get rid of that problem and, and you know, life goes on. And uh, so many wonderful, wonderful animals that are euthanized every single year because somebody didn't take the responsibility uh, when adopting that animal, buying that animal, whatever. Um, so with the wolf dog, it is very popular because a lot of people like to own a piece of the wild. Or if you look at the wolf dogs or the wolves, they're beautiful, majestic animals. So sometimes people want to ha- have that little bit of wild, you know, next to them. You can buy these animals anywhere from a few hundred all the way to a few thousand depending on who the breeder is and how much money they want to make out of it. And I've seen such exotic mixes that's like, oh, my gosh, that animal's been extinct for, you know, <laughs> that buffalo for X amount of years or whatever. But the more exotic that they can put a title on it, the more money they can make out of these animals. The only true, true way to really find out if your, your wolf dog has wolf uh, traits is to do a DNA test. What happens is, say, if someone does get a true wolf dog, has a lot of wolf behavior to it, um, they oh, I'll raise it as a puppy, and it'll become a house dog. It's still a wild animal. That's the problem. Back, and then all of a sudden, now you've got this vicious animal, and then the wolf gets a bad name. Darling, just like having an exotic animal as a pet, I feel it's unfair and almost inhumane to have a wolf-dog hybrid as a pet. I mean, you just don't know how much internal confusion, if you will, these animals are experiencing. They have wild characteristics. They have domesticated characteristics. They must experience some level of confusion as to what they are and how they should behave. You know, you're so right on that. If it's still part wolf, truly part wolf, they need space. They need hiding places. They they have instincts that you're taking that away from them. Right. And it's, it is that, too. They can become neurotic. Uh, they can, you see them to where they do neurotic behaviors um, because they're stuck. They're, they have no natural, you know, mental stimulation. And and without that, it's that is, that is cruel. Yeah, it's bad enough that we have these breeders out there breeding purebred dogs and designer dogs at a time when our shelters are at maximum capacity and at a time when we're killing five to six million dogs and cats every year in our country's shelters. So now we have these same sort of selfish individuals breeding for profit, creating an animal whose genes are a mixture of wild and domesticated, and we're creating an animal that we're really not sure how 
content or happy their lives will be. And as you mentioned, many of which will end up being relinquished to a shelter where they will automatically be euthanized or they'll just be abandoned or dumped. Darlene Kababel, president of Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center, thank you so much. Thank you. So you and your family have decided to get a dog or cat. We think that's great. And we want to remind you to adopt your next companion animal instead of buying. That's because shelters have so many loving dogs and cats waiting for a home that it just doesn't make sense to buy a pet from a breeder or pet store. And sadly, over half of all animals that enter shelters are killed. That's millions per year. So when you adopt your pet from a shelter, most likely you really are saving a life. When you go to a shelter to adopt your new dog or cat, you will find many wonderful choices for your new family member. And please tell your friends and family to visit the shelter when they are ready to get a new dog or cat. Ask anyone. When you adopt an animal, you'll have a loyal friend for life. And you'll feel pretty good, too. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org and on Facebook. That's AIanimals.org. Hey folks, it's Dana here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. Do you the IRS money? Do you have years of unfiled returns? Has the IRS garnished your wages or put a lien against your house? The IRS has the power to make you pay back what they claim you owe and will stop at nothing to collect. If you are losing sleep over your IRS tax problem, there is a solution. Call Signature Tax now. Speak with our professionals and feel the weight of your tax burden lifted from your shoulders. Call 800-859-9446 for your free and confidential analysis on ending your tax nightmare. We can help get your life back on track and give you the fresh start you deserve. Our A-plus BBB-rated tax resolution team has over 125 years of combined experience to get you the best deal possible while stopping the IRS dead in their tracks. Call Signature Tax now at 800-859-9446. Call 800-859-9446. Again, that's 800-859-9446. 800-859-9446. Welcome back to Animals Today. Bob Ferber is with us. Hey, Bob. Hi, Peter. How are you? Okay. So, in right. in Georgia, a, a couple who happens to be uh, lawyers, their poor dog, Lola, allegedly uh, got sick and died at the hands of some uh, veterinary care providers, and they are suing. And that doesn't happen very often in the first place. And in the second place, one of the bases for the suit is based in emotional damage. Bob, what is going on here? 
what's happening is that somebody lost an animal because of, let's assume it was malpractice, right. and the animal is very, very dear to this family, as anybody who, who has an animal can understand, a dog or a cat. When the, when the animal died, the family is suing, saying that we were so emotionally distressed by this that we should be reimbursed for two things. One, forgetting the emotional distress, we spent $67,000 to try to save this dog, and we only did that because you, the defendant, uh, the vet, didn't treat the dog right. So you owe us that $67,000. And in many states in, in the country, that's something that you might be able to get. Mm -hmm. The thing that they're really pushing that is on the cutting edge of animal law in this country is they're saying that Lola was worth a lot to them. It was a, She was a member of the family, and so they should be reimbursed for the emotional distress of losing uh, basically a family member. The state of the law in this country right now, and most of the world, is that you can't get money because you lost a valuable dog, a dog that is like a family member. For your listeners to understand this a little bit better, if the family's two attorneys had a son or a daughter that died in a hospital from malpractice, from being mistreated, they not only could sue for the money that they spent on the medical bills, they could sue for the loss of a family member, and they could get potentially millions of dollars. But with animals right now, they're treated like property, like losing a chair or a cable or a car and saying that, no, just because Lola is means a lot to you, Lola is not a son or a daughter, and so you cannot get more money than what Lola is worth. And Lola was a mixed breed dachshund, a mutt, and had basically what we say in law, no market value. Right. You couldn't have sold Lola. Mm -hmm for anything. So this is the argument that's going on, and the court has to decide, number one, the, does the family of Lola, the two lawyers, do they get the money for the $67,000 that they spent? And that, for your listeners' information, is not as radical as, as uh, some other issues in animal law. If you have a piece of property like you have a restored a family car that, uh, or a vehicle or a piece of artwork that you put a lot of money into and you give it to a professional to take care of it, they mess up, you could get you know, a lot of the money that you spent on that piece of property. So I think that there's a fairly good chance they're going to get the $67,000 for the vet, the vet bills. However, they the other thing that the Georgia Supreme Court has to decide is, is Lola, should Lola be treated like just a piece of property that is worth nothing more than her market value, which she's a, a rescue dog, so it's zero. Or should she be treated like a son or a child uh, who is a family member and that they should be re, uh, reimbursed, the two lawyers, for the emotional distress of losing a family member. So, Bob, is this an area where the court is going to make new law or they need to really go beyond the bounds of what's in the code? That's the key question. Uh, this is an issue in every state of the country. Uh, we're seeing more and more cases where judges are saying openly in court that I wish I could treat the dog like something other than a piece of property, but there is no law that says I can do it. 
and judges, you know, have an option of trying to make some law. But in most cases, the judges have been saying around the country, we need the legislatures to change the laws, to give us permission to treat an animal as something other than just a piece of property. And one of the most common scenarios where this comes up is in, in family court, when a, a family gets divorced, uh, a husband and wife, they fight over the animal. And in yeah. family court, this has been coming up where judges are saying, I want to treat that dog or cat like a child, because who do I decide where it goes to, the wife or the husband? Well, it depends. I want to do what's right for the animal. But the law says, no, the animal is just a piece of property like a potholder or something else that's in the, fam- in the family property. So this is a big issue around the country, and we have groups like PETA and Humane Society pushing very hard to, to change the law. But... Honestly, Peter, I think that it's going to take legislation. I doubt very much that a court is going to actually go out of their way and say, we've declared Lola as something more than just property. Not that that doesn't mean the judge wouldn't want to, but there are times when judges appropriately say this is not for a courtroom to decide this is for legislators to decide so what's been happening in the states and you know california tends to be a leader in these sorts of things what's happening when legislation is uh, brought up to ad- advance this sort of a uh, cause uh, it, not everyone thinks this is a great idea no no uh the biggest it, not surprisingly, the group, well, actually, it might be surprising to many people, the group that is most vocal against treating animals as something other than property are the vet- veterinary groups. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that vets don't love animals, but veterinary veterinarians have a financial stake in this issue. Uh, right now, veterinarians pay very, very little money for malpractice insurance. Uh, in fact, many, many vets don't even have malpractice insurance. Why? Because if they do something wrong and an animal dies and it's their fault, because the animal is just market value and most Dogs and cats are not, you know, a famous dog in a movie. They have no market value, so the vets don't have to worry. The most they may have to worry about is giving back the vet bills that the person spent before the animal died. So veterinary groups are opposed to this because they argue that they will have to pay millions of dollars in insurance. And uh, So that seems plausible, right? It does, except that in, in the insurance industry has done some studies on this and determined that that's really bogus. The insurance premiums for veterinarians would probably go up just a few dollars a month to cover malpractice. Uh, that this is probably very, the veterinarians are claiming that the sky is falling and that this is going to be a disaster and everybody's vet bills are going to go up. I was in a, an animal law conference where I debated with a veterinarian and some lawyers about this. And, it, and one of the heads of the insurance industry said the veterinary argument is bogus. The other thing, Peter, by the way, is that in medical malpractice for humans, states like California have put a limit on how much money you can get from malpractice. So it's not like the old days of, oh, your doctor uh, slipped and that did something that made a mistake and now you can get $20 million. In California, for most malpractice cases, the laws say the maximum is $250,000. They could do the same thing with animals and put a cap on it. 
So I think that the veterinary arguments that this is going to be a disaster if we make animals more than property, I think it's a bogus argument. Okay, so it's the case of Lola. It's happening in Georgia, and we'll follow this and talk about it after it is decided. Okay, Bob? Yes. Okay, stick around. More with animals today after the break. You look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? Well, you should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. I want to share with you an email that the Purple Heart Foundation received from one of my listeners. They write, I became aware of your group via the Dana Show, and hearing Dana speak favorably about your group, I did a bit of research, and many things looked good, especially third-party company reviews that rate charity givers. It also brought me to investigate one of the military service groups I've been giving to for a number of years, and I realized that my money would be better given to the Purple Heart Foundation. They write, I plan to keep Purple Heart Foundation on my list going forward. Unfortunately, not all veterans' organizations are the same. The Purple Heart Foundation is committed to helping all veterans and one of the biggest challenges that they face, veterans' claims. The Purple Heart Foundation's offices and service members nationwide are dedicated to helping veterans receive their benefits. Call 888-414-4483. That's 888-414-4483. They take many forms of donations, but a cash donation has the most immediate impact. All donations 100% tax deductible. Visit purpleheartfoundation.org. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. A monkey, an animal rights organization, and a primatologist walk into a federal court to sue for infringement of the monkey's claimed copyright. Sounds like a joke, right? But it's actually a line from a real court document filed by a lawyer for a photographer who was sued last year by the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. To make a long story short, a monkey in Indonesia took a picture of himself using a camera that a nature photographer had left unattended. It was hilarious, and the monkey's selfie went viral. 
Unfortunately, that's when the real monkey business started, and PETA sued the photographer. It claimed that the monkey, not him, should get any money generated by the photo. Let's be fair. I know our legal system sometimes seems like it's gone bananas, but I'm happy to say that a federal judge has just issued a tentative ruling upholding common sense. He says that a monkey can't own a copyright. PETA, however, pledges to keep fighting. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. According to the FBI Uniform Crime Report, there are over 5,000 robberies every day. Your home could be at risk of being burglarized. Don't put your loved ones and valuables in jeopardy. For just over a dollar per day, your home can be protected from break-ins, fire, and more. Get the latest home security technology from Protect Your Home, your ADT-authorized dealer. Over 6 million households sleep better at night with ADT-monitored home security. What's more, Protect Your Home is offering you their latest equipment, an $850 value, absolutely free for qualified customers. Protect your loved ones and home today. Call now for licenses and to find out more. The call is free, 1-800-261-3620. That's 1-800-261-3620. Again, 1-800-261-3620. $99 installation charge, 36-month monitoring agreement at $36.99 per month. Payment by credit card or electronic bank account charge. For new homeowner customers with satisfactory credit history only. Local permit fees may be required. Certain restrictions apply. Cannot be combined with any other offer. back to animals today so the other day peter and i were walking our two dogs on their leashes of course and out of the blue another dog off leash little dog came running towards us right he had just sort of gotten out of his little gate in front of his house right and now thankfully nothing happened but it got our dogs pretty excited and we were able to control our dogs but it got us talking about what if one of our dogs and both of our dogs are large, by the way. What if one of our dogs happened to snap or hurt this little dog that really ran towards us just to want to play, I think, right? Right. So that was one question that we entertained. And then we wondered, oh, there must be many legally tricky situations that people encounter all the time. And so we wanted to explore some of these. And we invited back attorney Kenneth Phillips. He is a nationally renowned uh, legal expert in all issues related to dogs and people, and he has a special interest in dog bites. Welcome, Kenneth. It's good to be here. Thank you. Kenneth, can you explain to us the one bite rule, and does it apply the same way in, in different municipalities and states? The one bite rule is an, is an old rule of law that applies everywhere, and it says that person who is the owner of any domestic animal, whether it's a dog or a cat, even a horse, because it gets included in that category, is not liable for anything dangerous or injurious that the animal does unless he's aware that the animal has the unusual tendency to do that thing. So like, for example, in a case involving a dog, if the dog has previously acted like it wants to bite people, whether it's bitten them or not, it still is enough information to make the dog owner liable under the one-bite rule. And the one-bite rule applies everywhere, but in two-thirds of the, of the states, we have other laws that supersede it and are more um, create liability from the time of the first bite, even if the, the, the dog has not given any indication that it wants to bite people. And who determines that the dog once gave an indication that he or she wants to bite people? It's pure common sense. In other words, in a, in a case, 
that I would handle, we would talk to neighbors, uh, the postman, the utility people, anybody who has anything to do with the, dog, the kids in the neighborhood, and we would ask them, uh, you know, is that dog a good dog? And if they say no, we would say why? And if they say, uh, for example, if they say it chases kids up trees trying to bite them, then we go, okay. And then the next question is, did did the owner ever see that happen or did you ever complain to the owner that it happened? And that would establish liability. Now, the one bite rule, again, common sense is used. So if, if the people say, oh yeah, the dog, whenever it's in its yard, it barks at people, then we would say, okay, that's not enough. Or if they say, oh yeah, the dog is always chasing other dogs and chasing other cats, we go, no, that's not enough. Because what we're talking about is, does it want to bite people, not does it want to bite other animals? So Kenneth, let's imagine the following situation. Let's say our dogs are in our secured yard. A ball rolls or is thrown into the yard and a child climbs over the wall to retrieve the ball. And one of our dogs happens to hurt or bite that child. What happens then? This is a tough one. Let me tell you why. There's two rules that would apply here. In the first place, the kid who goes over the wall would be trespassing. So as a trespasser, the dog bite statutes would, they have exemptions for trespassers. So the child would not be able to rely on the dog bite statute. So then the next question would be, is this a dog that was known to be vicious? Because if the dog was known to be vicious, there's kind of a split of authority. Traditionally under the one bite rule, if the dog is known to be vicious and you're the owner of the dog, you're still liable, even to a trespasser. Wow. Traditionally, yeah. And the reason is that the law doesn't have any interest or had no interest in protecting anybody who keeps a known vicious dog or a known vicious animal of any kind. So traditionally, that would be it. Now, there has been some confusion over the years over whether or not that applies uh, in various states. So different states have come out different ways on that. So there can be a fight over that. But the, I always uh, insist on adhering to the, to the old rule, which is, hey, look, it's a vicious dog. It's not just like anybody's dog. It wouldn't be like your dog, Lori. I'm sure you don't have a dog that you know, you know wants to kill or maim people. But, you know, if you did, I would say you should be held liable for that because you're keeping a dog like that. And, hey, it's not exactly unforeseeable that a ball could go in your yard. Mm. So I like the traditional rule on that. I do think that it is fair because I don't think that uh, the, the public in our communities have any legitimate interest in protecting known vicious dogs. Same application, Kenneth, for someone's cat, let's say. Or- yeah, the dog bite statutes or dog liability statutes, whatever you want to call them, they only apply to humans so that there's never, there, there shouldn't be automatic liability whenever uh, an animal, whether it's a dog or a cat, is, is injured because those one bite statutes do not, I'm sorry, the, the, the dog bite statutes do not apply to injuries to animals. And now that I've said that, I do want to say there are some communities that have passed laws 
that are one-bite laws that do apply to attacks on other animals. For example, the city of Beverly Hills, which is where I have my office, yeah. has a has a dog bite ordinance that applies to anything that gets injured, including property for that matter. So mm. the way it reads is that if you if if your dog injures any person or any animal or any property, you're liable in the city of Beverly Hills. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether the dog had ever done that before wow. or whether you knew that the dog had the dangerous tendency to do that, you're liable. So they wow. can have ordinances on the local level. This is what makes my field so interesting because in my field, there are layers of law that you have to check. Yeah. In other words, when something bad occurs, I have to check the city ordinance, the county ordinance, the state statute, and then I have to consider what's called the common law, which is the law that goes all the way back to the time of England, which is where that one by rule came from. So how about the scenario where a small dog off a leash runs towards us and our dogs on the leash, and one of our dogs hurts the small dog? Yeah, th- this is a, an interesting question, and, and it, it has a kind of a definite answer uh, with possibly a pit bull exception. And the, the answer is that if, if a person is breaking a law by not uh, obeying the leash law, in other words, letting their little dog run around, yeah. little dog, big dog, whatever it is, by breaking the law, that's almost always considered negligence. I mean, it's very it's very rare that it wouldn't be considered negligence. So you'd have one negligent party, the owner of the smaller dog, and then you'd have a non-negligent party, the person who's walking with their dog on a leash. And so obviously, the cause of the accident is the negligent party. All right? That's pretty much the way those cases always go. The only exception is if you are walking at, at your dog on the leash and you know that this dog is a is a real danger to any animal that it comes in contact with that it's going to try to kill it now there are people that have pit bulls that have manifested this and then there are people that have pit bulls that have not manifested this so we get into uh we 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 can get into uh a fight over to what extent is a pit bull owner always always should be legally held to be aware that a pit bull will go after other dogs. Yes, I will look forward to having that debate with you about pit bulls another time. Okay, Kenneth, there's another situation which I'm sure is not that rare. Let's say we're having a little gathering at our house and a family comes in with their human child and this child pulls the tail of one of our dogs and the dog snaps and hurts the child. And given what you've already told us, uh, if you would presume that this dog has no previous history of, of aggression. Right. Okay, so the dog has no previous history of aggression. So so when you look at it that way, you go, okay, the one-by rule isn't going to apply. So then the next thing you, you say is, well, is there a statute or an ordinance that applies? Well, all of them uh, have been interpreted as containing an exclusion, whether it's written in the law or not, for provocation. So... Then the question becomes, was the act provocative? In other words, is this the kind of act that justifies a violent response? So then you look at the response by the dog and you go, well, gee whiz, if the dog just turned around and snapped, that means in a dog, from one dog to another, it means get away from me. Mm -hmm. And you start going, ooh, you know, how can I hold 
the owner of the dog responsible for that because the kid the kid pulled on the dog's tail and the dog was just trying to say get away now if the dog turns around and commences a violent mauling of the child that's where you go uh uh-uh, that was not justified mm-hmm. even if the kid stimulated or let's say overstimulated the dog yes it wasn't justified for the dog to go that far so now you get into exactly how do the laws read in that area now i do want to say one more thing when it comes to kids in the home there is uh there is a body of law that says and it's applicable everywhere that says that if you have strange kids in your home you have as a homeowner you have a heightened duty to watch the kids so there could be circumstances in a case like that where a kid pulled on a dog's tail and normally we would say it's provocation but where there's still liability and i'll tell you uh, and let me let me just so i'm going to add to the factual scenario so that you can see where i'm coming from on this let's say you're having that party you have the kids over and these kids are really rowdy and really out of hand and you're just drinking your beer and you're just not you know it's just like ah the heck with it can't control them just i don't care the wife's not here let them destroy the house i really don't care under those circumstances if in the in the in the course of those kids acting up in a way that any adult would have would have intervened if one of those kids grabs the dog's tail and yanks it and gets bitten probably you're going to be held responsible because you needed to supervise those kids and because you didn't supervise them they got to that point where they were abusing the dog. Okay, attorney Kenneth Phillips, thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here is your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting, and this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. If you're living with diabetes and have Medicare or private insurance, here is some great news. Call United States Medical Supply today, and we'll send you the smallest glucose meter in the world, absolutely free. So small. It fits right on the bottle of strips. And if you call now, we'll also send you this stylish, full-featured meter at no charge. That's two free meters. You can keep one in your pocket and leave the other one at home. You can even hook it up to your computer so your doctor can track your results. United States Medical Supply also delivers prescription medication right to my door so I don't have to go to the drugstore anymore. Don't let diabetes get in the way of living. Give us a call today at United States Medical Supply and get the smallest meter in the world for free. Call today. Call 1-800-897-8374. That's 1-800-897-8374. Call 1-800-897-8374 today. And now, the lens of liberty. Here's Helen Kreeble. The real strength of America is our unity. The motto, E Pluribus Unum, is on all our currency and coins, and it means from the many one. America is not just a place, it's an idea. The idea that ordinary people can govern themselves. 
Americans are a diverse people, but we are united because we believe in the principles of individual freedom, personal responsibility, and free enterprise. We should guard our freedoms jealously and examine all government proposals through the lens of liberty, always asking, will this make us more free or less free? When we don't, we saddle ourselves with so many taxes, laws, rules, and regulations that we lose something of utmost importance, our freedom. The Lens of Liberty is brought to you by the Vernon K. Creeble Foundation. Hello, I'm Jerry Mathers. I was the beaver in Leave it to Beaver. When I played the beaver on TV, I often got into trouble without even meaning to. Well, years later, after I left Hollywood, I got into real trouble. My blood sugar was through the roof. When I was diagnosed with type 2, I was shocked. Now, the very same natural remedies I use to control my type 2 diabetes are available for you in a super easy program called the Diabetes Solution Kit. If you have diabetes, I urge you to try this step-by-step plan. It has all the natural techniques I used, and it works a lot faster, too. And today, you can try this fast and easy solution without risk. I'm Jerry Mathers, and if I can do it, you can do it, too. If you'd like to normalize your blood sugar and stop taking your diabetes medication completely with your doctor's approval, go to jerrymathers33.com for your free video. That's jerrymathers33.com. Reverse your diabetes in as little as 30 days by going to jerrymathers33.com now. Now, on a few occasions in the past, we've talked about the importance of creating a trust for the care of your companion animals in the event you die before they do or you are no longer able to care for them. But how about care of your companion animals in case of an emergency? I'm going to give you an example. So my high threshold for pain has gotten me into trouble a few times in my life. This latest episode taught us that every guardian needs a contingency plan in case you or members of your family suddenly become unable to make it home and take care of your animals. Now, I've been going about my usual activities of being an eye surgeon and leading Advancing the Interests of Animals, that's my nonprofit animal welfare organization, when a pain in my lower abdomen gradually and persistently made its presence known. Now, I did my best to ignore the ache, which waxed and waned a little bit, secretly wishing that it was nothing and that it would just go away through the power of ignoring it. But try as I might, it was not to be, and the pain became pretty severe at the end of work one day. And this is, by the way, this was while Peter was out of town at a medical convention. So I drove myself to the local emergency department to get a quick evaluation on my way home. Well, an inconvenient situation developed when the emergency room physician reported that the CAT scan of my belly showed the largest inflamed appendix he or anyone there has ever seen. Though I protested, there was no way they would allow me to leave the hospital. In fact, I had a successful emergency appendectomy a few hours later. Here's the thing. With Peter being away, we needed a trusted friend to go into our house to let the dogs relieve themselves and to feed them and the cats. We were lucky on two major accounts. Okay, first, my friend happened to have our house keys and thankfully was in town and knew what to do in terms of our animal care. She had taken care of our companion animals in the past, so she she was familiar with the routine. Secondly, even though I was in a lot of pain, I was conscious and clear-headed enough to contact her and make a plan. 
Now, this was a close call because we had never specifically planned for this kind of situation. I mean, what if my friend didn't answer her phone before they took me to surgery? Or, or if she did answer the phone, she didn't have the keys. Or I became unconscious before provisions could be arranged. Well, my dogs and cats would have suffered. So bottom line, before a crisis occurs, create an emergency plan in case you or your family members cannot get home to care for your animals. So this might include travel emergencies, natural disasters, accidents or illnesses, right? Secondly, make sure a trusted neighbor or family member or friend has a key for access to your home and that he or she is familiar with and comfortable with your animals, including what they like to eat, you know, diet restrictions, how they relieve themselves and any special needs they might have. Third, write all this information on a card for your wallet or purse to carry with you and with your other emergency contact information. And finally, post a visible list at home and give a copy to your emergency and long-term caregivers that includes your veterinarian's phone number and the special needs or your special care provisions for your animals. Your animals are the ones who are going to be suffering, so plan ahead before a crisis occurs. You're listening to Animals Today. That's animalstodayradio.com. And we're on iTunes, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. I want to welcome back to the show Matt Ellerbeck. Matt, your focus is primarily on salamander conservation. The last time we spoke was last summer, and when I think of salamanders and their environment, I think of hot and dry surroundings. Now, you live in Ontario, Canada, and it's in the middle of winter there. What are you up to these days, and are you seeing any salamander activity? I actually am seeing quite a lot of salamander activity, which I think surprises a lot of people. As you just mentioned, when most people tend to think of any kind of reptile or amphibian, they generally think of hot or dry environments. Now, salamanders, even in the summertime, they don't like it too hot. They actually like cool, damp environments. Um, So a lot of salamanders live in woodlands or forests where there's going to be a lot of humidity and moisture, a lot of shade, a lot of places where they can hide. A lot of salamanders live in streams. And some salamanders live in wetlands and ponds, and we tend to call those newts. Now, here in Canada, most of our terrestrial salamanders are now uh, deep underground. They're overwintering, so they're not actually hibernating because some of them will actually stay active. Down below the frost line, they'll find cracks in the substrate or, or use root channels to get down below underground. And because other invertebrates and, and insects might be using those same spaces fill the winter, those salamanders will actually feed if the opportunity presents themselves. So they are still active, but they're not at the surface. Um, And the surface is snow-covered here in Ontario, so I'm not seeing any of them. But two species of our aquatic salamanders are still out, and one of those is called the mud puppy. And uh, those are found in the United States as well. And they're about a foot long, so they're a very large salamander, and they have big, large external gills, so they're totally aquatic. And you can see those in rivers and creeks, and it's actually easier to see them in the winter because in the summer when the water warms up, they, they go off out into the deeper water, so you can't see them very well. But in the winter, when the water is very cold and shallow, um, I can actually go through these waters at night. I can actually see these salamanders um, right in the water there. And on my best mud puppy night I've ever had, I've seen a hundred of them in one night in January. The other group of salamanders I'm seeing are the newts, which are the pond-dwelling ones. So these ones don't have gills. They do have to come up for air, but I visited a pond recently, 
And because it doesn't didn't freeze to the bottom, the newts are actually active in there. And even if there is a, a bit of ice on top where there are openings, you can actually see the newts all gathered in there. So salamanders, although people tend to think of cold-blooded animals as needing heat, they're actually uh, more adapted to cool environments. That's because salamanders have an abundant amount of DNA, uh, more compared to you know other animals, and this provides them with an array of temperature-adjusted enzymes, which allows them to stay active in very cold environments. So that's why I can go out, as long as the water's not frozen, and see some of these creatures. So the general belief that cold-blooded amphibians means that the animal's perpetually cold and they depend on warm weather to survive is not necessarily true. No, and I tend to think of cold-blooded as a very outdated term. Uh, the correct term for cold-blooded animals is thermic, and what that means is they just rely on their environment around them to help them adjust their body temperature. So we can use an example of a turtle, which is a reptile. They do generally like it warm. So if, um, in early spring, if the turtle is feeling sluggish or cold, he'll crawl out onto a, a rock or a log and lay out in the sun, and that's going to bring his body temperature up. So the reptile is not perpetually cold. He just has to find ways in the environment to warm up. You know, they can't sort of generate their own body heat like mammals can. So salamanders are the same way, except that they don't generally need that much heat. And they thermoregulate, which means they seek out environments to regulate their body temperature, sort of the opposite way that most reptiles do, where they're kind of continuously looking for environments to warm up or to maintain an optimal temperature. Salamanders are kind of looking for ways to find areas in their environment to make sure they, they stay cool enough. Um, heat, um, too much heat can stress them and even kill them. Very good, Matt Ellerbeck. Thanks for educating us. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org.